Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and we're here today with Guy Lerone, talking about his book, Six-Day War, The Breaking of the Middle East, published by Yale University Press in 2017. Lerone brings a new perspective to a well-studied topic, which is how the economic context and domestic politics of the Israeli and Arab states pushed them closer to war in 1967. Lerone shows that similar trends were confronting each state, ranging from economic slowdowns and the weakening of developmental aid to weak civil-military relations, and these ultimately fed dangerously belligerent impulses. The broader context of the Cold War in turn pushed these powers into a conflict that continues to shape the Middle East today. Dr. Lerone, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you went to school. Well, I went to school in Israel. Uh, I did uh, my first and second degree uh, in history at Tel Aviv University. And um, then I went to do a PhD uh, in international relations at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Um, sometimes uh, people ask me why I switched from history to international relations. And I usually joke by answering, um, I was young, I needed the money. Which is, which is true. I mean, uh, the international relations department at the Hebrew U that they they had scholarship at the time, and uh, Tel Aviv University didn't. But um, either way, I, I was still a historian. I was just doing international history in an international relations department, uh, which I work in today, and but um, it's very tolerant towards you know different kinds of methodologies looking at international relations as you know a field of knowledge rather than a discipline that's so interesting um it's good to know that scholars can find refuge occasionally in other departments Um, right (laughs) what was your dissertation about my dissertation was about um, Israeli-Egyptian relations between 1952 and 1956. I started with 1952 because that, that was the date of the uh, Free Officers uh, Revolution in Egypt and ended uh, with the um, Suez Crisis at the end of uh, 1956. Uh, the unsexy t- uh, subtitle to the dissertation was um, the influence of domestic politics on foreign policies. And, you know, the main argument was that Israel and Egypt got into war, not because they had uh, uh, a conflict of interest that they uh, could not solve, but rather as a result of their uh, stormy domestic politics, and since you read my book, you can see that I'm I'm still stuck uh, arguing the very same questions. 
yeah, I, I feel like I can see at least a little, yeah, the, the connecting line. But let, let's flesh that out for our listeners. So this book, um, The Six-Day War, how did this project come together? You have sort of a, a funny introduction to it at the very beginning. Right. So, um, well, the, the, what I start with that is that I hate people that uh, begin their book writing that they wrote this book by accident. I mean, how, how can you write a book by accident? It's, uh, <laughs> uh, it sounds unreal. It takes a lot of time and energy. But I really wrote the Six-Day War <laughs> book by accident because, you know, I was researching the war and thinking about the war without ever giving a full account to myself that I was doing that. So uh, it starts with uh, a, a book launch event that I participated in when it was uh, the 40th anniversary uh, to the Six-Day War in 2007. And it continued through various courses I taught and, and articles I wrote. And then there was, you know, both the opportunity. I had a time off. I had a sabbatical at Oxford. And also I suddenly realized that um, the, you know, suddenly the 50th anniversary wasn't very far off. And if I'll hurry, um, I might be able to, you know, to publish the, the book on time. So uh, it was like context and opportunity. And both of them pushed, pushed me in the same direction. Okay. That's interesting how that comes together. Um, what's the framework of this book? I, I think you explore a, a really complicated topic in a really interesting way. Um, so one of the, I, I, you know, I wrote a little bit about the Six-Day War before embarking on a full-fledged book about the Six-Day War itself. And um, I did it also because I thought that that will make more sense for a publisher. Um, and then, then I thought, wow, so many books were written about the Six-Day War. Can I say something new or original? And um, so I started to read around. I, I, I usually don't start by, you know, write different pieces of the project and see how they fit together. I need to, you know, read as much detail as I can. And then suddenly I can see the forest from the trees. <laughs> and and uh, when I read about the combatant states, the states were, that were involved in the war, the more I read... Uh, the more they seem similar, you know, it, it, usually people don't compare uh, uh, Israel's economy and politics to those of its neighbors. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times it, they portrayed it as a case apart. But the more I read, I said, well, you know, there's a con connecting thread there. The, the Israel, Syria, Egypt, they seem to be in a bad place in terms of their economies and that mightily affected their their politics so uh and then it was like aha uh -huh. so that that would be that would be my contribution that people wrote about or or touched uh the matter of civil military relations but i suddenly realized that that could be like uh, uh, the organizing principle of the story and, and it will be a story like, you know, the, the, the introduction, which is just kind of theoretical, but the rest is a narrative. 
but a narrative structured around a certain theoretical model. And I just have to ask, before we dive into the economics, which I think is a really interesting question here, what was the archival research like for a project like this? Mm. So uh, I think I did the most uh, thorough archival research about um, the Soviet rule in the run-up to the war. Um, you know, all sorts of stories that, uh, you know, how I found a KGB document in Prague and I had to look over my shoulder because <laughs> suddenly <laughs> I get really stressed that, that someone uh, would be looking for it. Maybe it's there by mistake. Uh, and also how I found the uh, internal semi-clandestine publication of the Syrian Ba'ath Party um, in the basement of the Tel Aviv University. Uh, so, so that's where I, I, I really invested a lot of time in doing uh, archival research. But as I thought about Israel and, and the U.S., I thought there's so much published already that uh, I, I don't think I need to research the archives anew. It's just a matter of uh, rethinking and reinterpreting uh the story that we already know, and of course, you know, I, I've, uh, nobody spoke uh, about Israel's economy before the war, not in depth. So that, that that was you know secondary literature, but weaving it into the story was was kind of uh, uh, new. Okay, so we we've teased this this economics angle. Um, the okay. Six-Day War, and, you, and you've said you see these broad trends between the combatants. So what are those trends? What, what are you seeing that's facing simultaneously Syria, Egypt, and Israel, and Jordan as well? Okay, so I should say that I was uh, influenced by a very important scholar, which is myself. <laughs> I wrote a, a few years previously uh, a, an article in uh, a Third World Quarterly and uh, it argued basically that uh, that um, non-alignment movement, uh, the whole uh, third world coalescing project that that uh, you know was in force between 1955 and 1965, collapsed due to um, economic reasons, and uh, it's basically a business cycle, um, but you know. The business cycle is about the ebb and flow of the economy. So mm -hmm. back in the mid-1950s, third world countries looked like a very good investment opportunity. They were growing briskly and uh, people do what they usually do in times of high growth in the economic periphery. They extrapolate into the future and say this and this state would be the powerhouse of the next century, you know, the way they talked about Argentina. Uh, at the, the end of the 19th, uh, 19th century is the, you know, the land of tomorrow. And it mm. still is uh, the land of tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I suddenly realized that the same process was taking place also in Middle Eastern countries. Uh, back in the mid-50s, they looked like a good investment uh, opportunity, but not just to private investors, but also to states, Okay. Um, both Israel and Egypt and Syria got a lot of aid from the superpowers. Uh, 
Um, and what I think what the superpower thought, you know, beside the strategic game of gaining influence, but also that they were buying access into future markets that were, were going to grow and grow. Uh, what people start to realize in the mid 60s, both in inside developing countries and in developed countries, that their future, their industrial growth it will be a more complicated story and it will take more time. And for the time being, like by the, the mid 1960s, the project kind of fizzled. Uh, money wasn't um, allocated responsibly. Uh, the factories that were created by using uh, aid money um, were inefficient and were badly run. So um, when we get to the mid-60s, uh, you find that you know the Israel economy, the um, Egyptian economy, the Syrian economy, they all face a downturn. Added mm. to that, all of them, that's something I may have not emphasized enough, all of them get the same kind of advice from the IMF. So usually you talk about the Washington consensus when you get to the 90s, but it seemed that the, the IMF was implementing a, a Washington consensus already back in the mid-1960s, and um, the World Bank and the IMF were saying to developing countries the same thing, you must cut the budget. You know, only by cutting the budget and uh, raising taxes, you uh, will um, halt the deficit uh, in your um, uh, balance of trade and your uh, external external debt will decline. Now, um, how, how does that affect politics? Uh, mm. Up to that point, governments in Israel and in Egypt and Syria, they, they, they could play Santa Claus. They always had money to give, and they always had the tools to maintain full employment. Get jobs to everybody, and especially the educated, because they're the most you know politically volatile. Uh, but once you get to the mid-1960s, they don't have those tools at their disposal anymore. Uh, and civilian governments... Uh, become incredibly unpopular. And those are the same people, you see, like Levi Eshkol. He's the prime minister of Israel on the eve of Six-Day War. He was also the finance minister from the 1950s up to the 1960s. Gamal Abdel Nasser, it's, it's the same protagonist all the time in Egypt. He's there. He's the president from uh, 1954 to, to uh, 1967. So these two uh, leaders, they become increasingly unpopular. And that's where the story of civil-military relations gets into the picture. This is where the army steps in, the military steps in, and, and fills the kind of political void that uh, was created by the collapse in the popularity of civilian leaders. Wonderful. Um... Let's dig a bit into the behavior of the, of the respective combatants in this war. So what are the positions of the various Arab states? Because they are, they are distinct. I definitely got that sense, having read the book. Um, so we're starting to talk about the crisis itself, the crisis that leads to the war, right? 
Yeah, and and what what's going on that's push? I mean, so we've got these sort of broad economic forces that really are are wreaking havoc, sort of on everybody. Right, Israel. Israel's facing it. So I think maybe differently, but similarly. Right. So I think we can move from the weakest link, which was the Syrian economy, and go through Egypt and then end with Israel. So in the weakest link, uh, the Syrian economy that was, you know, less developed than uh, the other two, uh, the army simply took over. Okay, there was a, there used to be a strong, well-connected uh, urban Sunni elite uh, in Syria that ran, ran the affairs of the state basically from uh, 1944 uh, up to 1964. And although Syria experienced many military coups, uh, government came back to the hands of civilians in Damascus at the end of the day. Um, and that wasn't the case from um, uh, 1965. So basically 1965, there's a, a coup in which uh, the army takes a prominent role. And then in February 1966, the army takes over. Syria becomes a full-fledged military dictatorship. And one of the main reasons that uh, the army could have done that was that around between 62 and 64 the civilian government in Syria implemented uh, an IMF uh, sanctioned policy okay uh, so that, that that eroded the that basically undermined an elite that uh, used to rule Syria for you know more than 20 years um, and once the generals take over in Syria, they uh, will kind of export the, the, the Syrian instability to the rest of the region. Uh, one way of, uh, in which they thought to uh, uh, ingratiate themselves to the Syrian population was to escalate the conflict vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel. So that's what's happening in, in Syria and uh, specifically Syria uh, gives uh, refuge to uh, Fatah uh, guerrilla organization, which is like the main uh, Palestinian uh, organization um, fighting Israel. So the Syrians don't just host them. Uh, they help them train. They give them weapons. And uh, I think uh, by the time we reach 1967, they think about the Fatah as an arm of uh, the Syrian military intelligence. So, so that's what's happening in Syria. Uh, we can move then to Egypt, uh, facing a very uh, similar crisis. You know, once upon a time, the Egyptian economy looked on a very promising path. I think uh, Egypt got you know, between the mid-50s to the mid-60s, uh, Egypt got uh, from the Soviet Union and the United States um, something around the sum of $2 billion, uh, which was significant. It funded about a third of its uh, development plans. Um, but by the time we get to 1965, the money dries up. 
both uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union are kind of um, disappointed by what they got on their uh, investment. And, uh, you know, Nasser, like the civilian government in uh, Syria, he needs to implement austerity measures. And then there are the lines, you know, in the markets. You want to get flour or fish or rice. Something will be missing. Sometimes, you know, all the essentials. Sometimes some of them. If, it's, uh, if it occurs during Ramadan and, you know, people have to cook the iftar, the, 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 the meal that uh, breaks the fast as, uh, during nighttime. Uh, so the government will make an extra effort to uh, make sure that everything would be in the market. But during the rest of the year, um, you experience um, sh- shortage of uh, foodstuffs all the time and then there are all those uh fun things that you you buy for your home like refrigerators and uh tvs and uh, cars you you had to line and register for that as well you can just go to a store and buy one uh and as um gamal abdel nasser is implementing those measures he becomes increasingly unpopular to the point that there's a new underground uh, um, movement of the Muslim Brotherhood planning to assassinate him and other ministers and um, the revelations from the investigation of the Muslim Brotherhood shook Nasser to the core. So he he would be the army for the next two years as basically an internal police force, uh, a Praetorian guard, if you will. And that makes the army also very powerful. And one of the things that the uh, army wants to do, and and the person who heads uh, the army, Abdul Hakim Amr, is to deploy Egyptian forces in Sinai, which is demilitarized for over a decade as a result of kind of an informal agreement between Egypt, the U.S., and Israel. So that's the Egyptian case. And then you get to Israel, which, um, you know, was doing much better, uh, was affected by an economic downturn, but not to the same extent of the other two. Uh, You know, what was missing in Israeli markets. So of people in Tel Aviv, uh, the town from which I'm speaking right now. Um, uh, um, So people in Tel Aviv could go to restaurants less. They bought less red meat. Uh, They didn't uh, shop for cakes, right, so much. Uh, And, um, I mean, their life were not that miserable, but comparing to what happened uh, three or four years ago, uh, they they weren't doing so well, and they were ah they they they, they stopped buying carpets and furnitures. So um, um, they they expressed their their resentment uh, also in the popular press, and um, Ashkol was you know he always looked like a very nice uncle, but he wasn't very charismatic. He had he had to face the fact that. Uh, 
every time he was out in public, he got jeered and booed and uh, was treated in general disrespectfully by uh, the audience. So um, he thought he thought I found a cure for that, and he started using uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, um, kind of irresponsibly um, to shore up his popularity and letting them have a go at the Syrians. So the three parts of the story is connected by mid-May 1967. Uh, the Syrians were escalating their uh, campaign against Israel by uh, sponsoring Fatah attacks, uh, which weren't, incidentally, weren't very lethal. Uh, they also uh, made it seem as if the Syrians, that is, as if they're about to uh, uh, divert the tributaries of the uh, Jordan River and thereby deprive. Um, Israel uh, of running water. Um, the scheme didn't have a chance, but there were a lot of people in Israel that um, uh, they, they, they saw political gain in, in pretending this was a real threat. Uh, so um, the IDF in turn was, was initiating uh, border skirmishes uh, with the Syrians. And finally, in response to one of them, or the threat that another one will occur, uh, Egypt deployed its forces in Sinai. And thus started a mad chain of events that ended with the Six-Day War. Now, it, it, it's interesting especially you bringing up, the, you know, this series of provocations that everybody seems to be using for their own end, heedless of the fact that it's it's stoking this, you know, increasingly sort of a hot environment. What's the IDF's long-term goal, especially as it's sort of eyeing its various Arab neighbors? Uh, well, that's, that's, a, that's an argument I have with um, several Israeli historians. And that is, uh, and, and the argument is over what is the meaning of a contingency plan? If a military, you know, if, if an army as an organization has a um, contingency plan to attack and destroy uh, neighboring armies and then uh, move forward to conquer large chunks of um, neighboring territory. Is this just, you know, something you write down for a rainy day? Uh, or, or that you can uh, 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 use those plans as proof that this is indeed what uh, the Israeli army was planning to do. And going back to 1953, the IDF had plans to conquer basically all the territories it conquered in June 1967. And it wasn't just, you know, plans as in, you know, sort of a philosophical debate in a seminar that just happened to be uh, uh, printed on paper. Uh, it, it, it was also, you know, a plan of action. So the IDF trained in a way that would 
allow it to uh, uh, implement those plans. It um, applied incredible pressure uh, on the government that uh, it would increase its budget so it can uh, purchase all those aircrafts and, and tanks and um, uh, armored troop carriers that were needed to create a very uh, mobile uh, military force that would be able to maneuver swiftly and then just move very rapidly in order to uh, uh, conquer as much territory as possible in the shortest time. Um, and as I said, it, it also purchased the weapons. It also purchased the materials that would enable the army to do that. That was the plan of Israeli generals for, you know, two successive generations of, of generals. You know, officers uh, came and went, but the plans stayed the same. They sometimes they, they updated every five years. They updated those plans to make sure that, you know, Everything is in place. And yeah, and, and the last thing I, I should mention, like there was a lot of effort that went into acquiring the knowledge, the intelligence that would be necessary to to implement those plans. You know, um, it happens a lot in life that uh, you you watch someone do something very complex and hard, and he's doing it effortlessly. So you think maybe it's really easy. And, and, and the Israeli army had a very convincing victory uh, uh, in June 1967. It, it was a war that lasted uh, just six days, and as a result of which Israel tripled in territory. Uh, but the fact that it was done so swiftly uh, and so efficiently uh, was the result of long-term patient preparations. What's the role of the Soviet Union here? We, we've alluded to these aid programs, but they're sort of lurking in the background of all of this. What are they doing? Um, so in terms of uh, the history of the history or the history of the book, this is where I started. Um, I was invited to a book launch of a book titled um, uh, Fox Bats Over Dimona. And um, the main argument of the book was that um, uh, the Soviet Union initiated the war, that by the time that the book was published in 2007, that was the long-standing argument. That for some reason, uh, the Soviet Union wanted a war to erupt in the Middle East. And how do we know that? Because, because Nasser said that. He said that the main reason that he deployed his army in Sinai was that he got an intelligence report from Moscow, and the intelligence report said that Israel would attack uh, Syria uh, within a few days, um, and Syria and Egypt had a military pact that that uh, stipulated that uh, an attack of one on one was essentially an attack on the other, and he you know had to help his ally or, or lose face. Now. The, 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 the claim is that the intelligence report was false. I mean, Israel did not deploy forces on, on its northern border, and that is taken as proof that Israel had no intention of attacking Syria. And uh, I think what you can say about this story is that um, 
if, if you can say that the, the, the fact that the Egyptian army was deployed in Sinai was sort of a punishment, then uh, Israel was like this thief that gets punished on the <laughs> single loaf of bread he didn't steal. So, because Israel had plans to attack Syria. Uh, it had long-standing plans specifically to take the Golan Heights. And at the specific time that uh, the Soviet Union delivered uh, that famous intelligence report, you didn't need a Soviet spy in Israel to know that Israel was going to attack Syria because that's what Israeli leaders said in public. Okay, and and th this didn't end there because uh, you know unknown um, sources or knowledgeable sources in the in Israeli general staff leaked to uh, military correspondence the exact plan. So it was kind of elaborate what what it was elaborated what Israel would do. So um, uh, that. Soviet intelligence report uh, wasn't a lie. It missed the date, but uh, um, it wasn't a lie. Uh, moreover, I speculate in the book that the information about the impending Israeli attack uh, was gleaned not just from newspaper, but from an agent, an agent the Soviets thought was working for them but actually um, was working for Israel. And um, I, I think Israel basically wanted to convince the Syrians once and for all that it means business. And what can convince the Syrians more than leaking to the Syrians through the Soviets that Israel will attack them? So um, um, I think... Uh, the Soviet intelligence got hoodwinked um, by the Israeli intelligence, and then you know uh, things got out of control. Um, having said that, what is you know uh, the broader perspective of the Soviet role in the region at the, at the time? The Soviet Union sold weapons to uh, Syria and Egypt. Uh, also because it thought it was a good business uh, for Moscow and also for its allies. Czechoslovakia was also big on selling weapons in the Arab world. Uh, the Soviet Union was also su supplying um, economic aid, uh, both for Egypt and Syria. The, the Soviets were big on dams. They already built the Aswan Dam in Egypt and they were about to uh, build a dam on the Euphrates in um, Syria. I think uh, both in the government, uh, specifically the Prime Minister Alexei Kassidin, um, and in the foreign ministry, uh, there were people that wanted to avoid war in the Middle East at all costs. Um, some kind of careful engagement with Israel, that's okay if Egyptians want to deploy their forces in Sinai. Um, the Soviets might, might back this kind of decision. But uh, once uh, Egypt uh, closed the Straits of Tehran, which was an own casus belli because, you know, Israel declared it so, 
then um, a lot of people in Moscow were um, were hinting to the Egyptians that 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 was wrong, that they should think of a way to to back down uh, from from that step. Um, at the same time, uh, Moscow was not united. And uh, at the same time that people like Kasigin and uh, Gurmiko and uh, another minor figure that I write about, uh, Vladimir Semyonov, um, uh, they were trying to calm the water and make sure that what happened in the Middle East in, in May 67 would not end in, in, in a war. There were... Uh, opportunistic elements, uh, specifically in the Kremlin, um, someone like Leonid Brezhnev, the party chairman, and also within the military establishment that, you know, uh, using uh, Ram Emanuel's uh, famous phrase, don't, don't let a good crisis go to waste, <laughs> that uh, uh, maybe this, this was a good opportunity for Moscow uh, to get something it always want to uh, have, and that is permanent access to um, naval facilities, both in Syria and um, and Egypt, because uh, the the Soviet uh, Navy is thinking globally, and it thinks about the Mediterranean as a good spot for it to argument. Uh, its naval presence, create a counterforce to the presence of the Sixth Fleet, maybe uh, make it harder for uh, Polaris submarines to launch uh, missiles at the Soviet Union if a war ever occurred. And, uh, and in order to do all that, you have to have you know, permanent facilities in places like uh, Alexandria and, and Latakia. So while someone like Kasigin is trying to uh, hint to the uh, uh, Egyptians that, you know, you played a good game, now it's time to settle down and calm things, um, the Soviet general staff uh, is saying something different, something along the line that we're in the Mediterranean with very powerful weapons, and if you ever need us, just whistle. Uh, and that that uh, emboldened the Egyptian government to continue on the same disastrous path, um, you know, on which it, it uh, um, embarked on, on the 15th of May. And what about the United States? I mean, they're sort of the other, the other side of that superpower coin. Um, so, huh, well, I, I can tell you two things. One is the, the Soviet rule about which I spoke about at length just now, that was kind of ignored in most of the reviews on the book. So uh, maybe, I don't know, it, not, it doesn't connect to the present that much. Maybe it's like, you know, ancient, the ancient story of the Cold War. <laughs> but also most of what I wrote about the American role in the crisis was uh, ignored um, because it's kind of inconvenient. Um, what I say basically is that, uh, at least for the Middle East, the fact that um, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in November 1963 was a very important development. So. 
Kennedy was big on, on giving aid to uh, non-aligned countries. He tried to create a strategic um, alliance with um, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, his uh, assistants calling uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser in one of the documents, Mr. Big of the Middle East. And uh, that went by the, and he also was trying to keep Israel at bay, uh, Kennedy. And that went by the um, waste paper basket once uh, Lyndon Johnson replaced uh, Kennedy in the White House. Uh, Johnson didn't like giving um, economic aid to developing countries, but he was a fan of arms sales. And while Kennedy gave something like half a billion of subsidized wheat um, to Egypt during his time in the um, Oval Office, um, Lyndon Johnson sent $800 billion worth, $800 billion worth of weapons into the Middle East um, up to the Six-Day War, specifically selling weapons to uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Iran, that incidentally, all of them sworn enemies of Gamal Abdel Nasser. And when, you know, push comes to shove, you know, those, those uh, crucial three and a half weeks between the 15th uh, of May until the 5th of June when Israel attacked, uh, the White House was um, winking at Jerusalem uh, more and more desperately in a hope that, you know, the Israelis would get the message without Lyndon Johnson actually saying to them, go and beat that SOB uh, as hard as you can. And that, uh, that, that SOB is Gamal Abdel Nasser. That's the role of the U.S., and this is a question, you know, you, I'm sure you could teach an entire semester on this particular question. So, you know, don't feel the need to try to bite off more than you can chew. What's the, what do you see as the significance of the war's outcome? Well, um, in, you, you know, in the most uh, concrete way, it's the fact that um, up to 67, um, there was a border that separated most of the Palestinians from most of the Jews that inhabited Israel slash Palestine. So, you know, a, a, the great majority of the population in Israel is Jewish, and the great majority of the population that um, uh, resides uh, in the West Bank and Gaza um, is Palestinian. Now, at the end of the war, that border was erased. And what you got was basically a bi-national uh, uh, community that increasingly from 67 up to this day uh, was living with a sort of a slow motion civil war that you know kind of intensified from 87. Um, up to today, uh, if we go back a little bit, then uh, there wouldn't, wouldn't have been a peace agreement between um, Israel and Egypt and Israel and Jordan without the Six-Day War. There was always the theory 
before the Six Day War that uh, the importance of gaining territory uh, in in a war with the Arabs is that the, the new territories would be can be used as a, um, as a chip in a in a negotiation with Arab countries, and that materialized. Israel gave back Sinai to Egypt in uh, 1979, and that ensured that uh, the, the signing of the um, Camp David uh, peace accords. And later in the early 90s, um, you know, uh, Israel gave back to Jordan a not very significant amount of territory and was able to sign a peace agreement uh, with it as well. And uh, I, I think most of what I said up to now isn't debatable. What, what is debatable is two things. Um, and and that, that's also, I think, uh, two effects of the war. One is uh, the war significant, significantly strengthened um, the power um, and the role of uh, the army within Israeli society. Uh, and it will never, never lose that, uh, you know, outsized role in decision making from then until today. Um, it also affirmed to Israeli generals that the best defense is offense, right? The best uh, way to defend yourself is to attack. And to, in my view, that... that uh, that uh, embroiled Israel in a series of uh, wars that were avoidable, that were uh, in large part unnecessary. Um, also, when you look back at someone like uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, you know, he was a secular ruler at the end of the day and used Islam as a way to legitimize his uh, Role and this, you can say the same about the government in in Damascus. If if they had a religion, it was it was the religion of economic development that industrialization would make everything better uh, in the Middle East. And um, the power, you know, symbolic power, ideological power uh, of of elements such as these was irrevocably broken as a result of the Six-Day War, because, you know, they had their chance. They ruled Syria and they ruled Egypt, and they were badly defeated. defeated. And I think that strengthened uh, various varieties of, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood movement uh, throughout the Middle East. This is, this is when, you know, people can start and say, Al-Islam al-Hal, Islam is the solution. So I have a question. Um, is this a book that's about weak civil society in the Middle East? Because in all of these cases, you have these you have militaries that play variously outsized roles. I mean, the military in Israel doesn't take on the size and strength that it does in Syria. And yet, in each case, the military does sort of end up playing this sort of outsized role. Do you see civil society here as a problem? Um... I think the problem is that it's too weak and um, um, perhaps in, in, um, in Arab countries, 
that's a foregone conclusion because I, I do think that you have you, you need to reach a certain degree of urbanization and industrialization that you have uh, you know a seizable middle class because that's the backbone of a, of a thriving democracy and a strong civil society but Israel could have had a chance could have had a shot and having uh, a stronger civil society and um, Uh, you know, I teach a course about um, Israeli foreign policy, and I always ask the students, um, what do you think is the difference between hawks and doves in Israeli politics? And they usually say, well, hawks are more belligerent, they're more prone to use military force, they, they want to uh, maintain control over the West Bank. I said, yes, but... All, all of those are derivatives. And, and the main difference, I think, between hawks and doves is uh, that hawks believe that the conflict with the Arab world is, you can't solve it. Uh, it's eternal. It's, it's uh, another chapter in the long history of uh, anti-Semitism. And it's a cultural conflict. While the doves uh, certainly believe that at one point or another, you can solve the conflict With the Arab world, it's a conflict about uh, concrete resources, mainly land, and then you compromise on that. Uh, and I think what the Doves, which were usually liberal in the sense that they were supportive of, uh, you know, laissez-faire economy, um, worried about was that that an internal uh, conflict with the Arab world will create uh, a, a strong state and a weak civil society. And um, I think at the end of the day, their, their fears were eventually realized, partially so because of the Six-Day War. Would you call this book a global history? I mean, it's so, it's so ranging as it looks for the various sources of this conflict. Well, not only that, the original title of the manuscript was um, Generals at the Helm, subtitled A Global History of the Six-Day War. But uh, if you wrote a book or will write a book, um, or listeners will do that, uh, they'll find out pretty quickly that they had a great idea for a title and the press is absolutely convinced they have a, a, an even greater idea for a title. Uh, and, you know, I'm so grateful when I can find a press that will publish my book that I, I usually, you know, I don't give up any fight. So, 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 but, but, but initially, yes, the, the name I gave to the book stressed that it, it, it's supposed to be a global history of the war and that, you know, in difference to all the histories of the war that were basically regional. I have just a couple more questions to think about here. You know, when, when I teach, I always try to impress upon my students that by and large, um, the Middle East can be understood with the Cold War, but it's its own, it's its own separate set of issues. And you, you can't conflate Cold War conflicts and Middle East conflicts. It's not a, a perfect overlap. Nevertheless, there is a Cold War issue going on here. What does the Six-Day War tell us about the Cold War? That as a result of uh, the frozen status quo in Europe, which is basically where the Cold War started, 
Um, the superpowers exported their tensions into other areas of the world. Well, you know, that's the main thesis of uh, Arnie Westhead in the global Cold War, that, uh, and that was his significant contribution to highlighting the fact that those wars by proxies that uh, the Soviet Union and the United States engaged in, in Asia and Africa and Latin America and the Middle East, uh, they took regional tensions that were existing, but exacerbated them greatly. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the Arab-Israeli conflict would have been, you know, long and protracted, but it was definitely made far more lethal because of superpower intervention and the fact that they sold weapons in, in their effort to outbeat each, each other. All right. I have just one question left for you. Um, what are you working on right now? Um, I'm hoping to have a, a nuclear summer, uh, <laughs> meaning that I, I, I'm working on a, on a paper that uh, ranges on the uh, nuclear aspects of uh, um, the Six-Day War and the, um, and the war that came after the, the Yom Kippur War. And um, yeah, I have, I have, I'm seriously considering turning that into a more broad-ranging uh, book um, about, um, you know, the role that the, the, the political and economic role that um, Israel's uh, nuclear project or a nuclear option, you know, in Israel we're not allowed to to say the. Uh, um, uh, explicit uh, term, unless unless it's preceded by according to foreign force uh, sources. Um, but uh, yeah, I think basically kind of a, a nuclear history of Israel. That sounds very interesting and and yet sort of political to navigate too. Um, right. Well. Yeah. Thank you for spending so much time with us today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much Zeb, for initiating that. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.